We are in the middle of our series simply entitled Worship, and today we're looking at the prerequisite to worship. Join us for today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Reformed Heritage Church here in San Jose, online at reformedheritage.org. Hi there. Welcome. This is Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, who takes us back to our series on worship. And we're looking once again at Psalm 24. It's the prerequisite to worship. What, What is required for us if we are to worship God properly and rightly? Well, that's what we're exploring today. Won't you join us? Here's Pastor Gary with today's edition of Abounding Grace. Set down as proper for his worship. Worship is much more than coming and sitting out there trying to stay awake and looking somewhat interested for an hour. William Beveridge, an 18th century Anglican bishop, writing on the theme of worship, said, When we speak of godliness, we must not restrict it to a few particular acts but look upon it as comprehending the whole system of all those duties which we as creatures owe to him who made us, and in deep performance whereof our worship and adoration of him consist, so that he who worships God rightly may thusly be termed a godly man, and no man else can properly be called such a name. He is saying that he who worships God correctly, according to God's will as written down in his word, can be considered a godly man, and those who don't cannot. Most importance that we understand the importance of worship if we are to be called godly. Beveridge goes on to say this, and therefore... If we would not be mistaken in such a matter of such consequences as this, in order to our finding out what real godliness is, we must search into the nature of divine worship and seriously consider it ourselves what it is in Scripture's sense to worship God. What it is in a Scripture sense to worship God. And this is why we are approaching this theme of worship with the significance that we are. I want you to see that God may rightly and certainly refuse our worship. Look at the book of Amos, chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. And for those of you who are not familiar, Amos is between Joel and Obadiah. Amos chapter 5, verse 21. This is God himself speaking about the issue of worship. He says, I hate. I despise your feast days, and I will not smell your solemn assemblies. How about that? God himself saying to his people that he hates what they are offering up as worship, and he rejects it taking absolutely no delight in it. God may refuse our worship. And I believe much of what is being offered up today in American churches, God rejects. Maybe even some of ours. Verse 22. 
Though you offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beast. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. That's quite an indictment. I don't want to hear your songs, he says. Don't put your money in the plate. I'm not interested in your money. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. I reject your festivals. This is what God is saying about the worship of many. I hold my nose, I close my eyes, I cover my ears. Is this what God says about your worship? It's not worth looking at, it's not worth listening to, it stinks. What would ever make God say such things? I know this sounds so foreign to you. Because many of us feel if we just show up and give our time that God ought to be tickled to death. It was just so kind of us to take an hour out of our week to spend with Him. What could He possibly want more than that? Well, in verse 24, here is how He counteracts our feeble worship. But let judgment or justice run down as waters and righteousness as mighty streams. What makes worship unacceptable? There is no justice or righteousness. There was sin and there was injustice. Because of that, he said, I hate your worship. So there are two more prerequisites to acceptable worship. The first one is that worship is unacceptable to God when there is a broken relationship between two believers. In Amos, we see the people of God being oppressed. And, of course, for that to take place, there had to be sin between man and man. So you're out there saying, okay, that's fine, but what could that possibly have to do with worship? A lot. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Christ, in his Sermon on the Mount... It gives us explicit teaching on how this type of sin prevents and precludes acceptable worship. Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. Now notice first, he doesn't remember that he has given something against someone else. You remember someone has something against you. The problem may be your fault or it may be the other person's fault, but the issue is not who said something first. Well, here's God's instruction. Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. Christ puts a premium on relationships within the body of Christ. And notice, he is talking about brother to brother. If you and another Christian are at odds, one of you have sinned against the other, you must make it right before your worship is acceptable. I know of a father and son both Christians 
who have been at odds with each other for several months. The son has done everything possible within his means and biblical to try and reconcile with his father, but the father refuses. He wants his son to say he was wrong, and that's it. That's final. Well, I can assure you that father's worship is not pleasing to the Lord. You know, you can't be in close relationship in a family or a church without having personalities rubbed wrongly against one another from time to time. But when it happens... You need to be reconciled right away or you can't come worship God. Because when you come to worship God, you come to ask His blessing upon you. How can you ask for His blessing when there is a breach with one of your brethren? Bless us even though we can't bless each other? That can't happen, brothers and sisters. In Psalm 24, we are asked, Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord, or who will stand in his holy place? You have come here to glorify God in union with your brethren, to stand in his holy presence with those who Peter says you are to love fervently. How can you stand in his holy presence? Here's the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Let me put it this way. If you come into this place with any sin that is in your life that's unconfessed, that has not been dealt with properly, you can't worship aright. Your worship is not truly worship. It is in vain. Worship is a privilege for the people of God. Yes, it's a duty of the people of God, but it is also a privilege. And it's a privilege that you forfeit if you're not prepared to lay aside the sin that would prevent the very act of worship. Again, I quote Beveridge, and these are magnificent words. It cannot be easily imagined that if people did rightly understand what it is to worship God that they should ever fancy that coming to church and sitting there while somebody prays and somebody preaches is all the worship that God who made them requires of them, unquote. What a wonderful way to put it. And the reason we do that is because we don't understand what it truly is to worship God. We are still locked in the mindset of what did I get? rather than what did I give. Here is something I read somewhere that puts an aspect of our worship in true perspective. If a person lives to be 70 years old, and every Sunday of his life he went to church for one hour, and of course that's not even the average Christian because most of us don't come every week. But if you live to be 70 years old, and from the day you were born, you went to church every Sunday for one hour, at the end of your life, you would have spent a grand total of five months worshiping God. Seventy years, five months. Now say you're one of those fanatics 
who goes to evening service somewhere. Now you've spent 10 months in worship. And we think once a Sunday is enough, enough to where we can even miss a Sunday now and then. That's not even 1% of your life in corporate worship. Now, remember worship is giving unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. So since we fail to do that as we should, we can probably break that five months down to two, maybe one month. Because remembering, remember giving God the glory he deserves means worshiping him with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength. And in that case, maybe we should reduce that to about five days. How much time do we actually spend worshiping God as he has commanded us to do? And remember, as I've just said, worship can only take place when our hearts are pure and there is no schism between us and another brother. Now how much time have you truly worshiped the Lord? We have seen that our worship is unacceptable to God when there is a broken relationship between man and God because of sin. If God won't accept our worship, when there is a broken relationship between us and another Christian, how much less will he accept our worship if there is a broken relationship between he and us? John Downing said, If having offended our brother, we may not approach unto the altar to offer our gift, how much less may we presume to offer unto God any religious service until first, by our repentance, we've made our peace with him. Let me just give you a string of verses real quick to drive this home. Psalm 29, 2 commands us to worship the Lord, but then it adds this qualifier in the beauty of holiness. You see, the holy life of a person offering worship to God is what makes that worship beautiful. Psalm 96, 7 and 9 says to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Psalm 18, 20 tells us that God will reward us according to the cleanness of our hands. Now Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. We know from these blunt words, God is obviously not talking about a people who are pure. When we think of bastions of virtue, we don't usually categorize the Sodomites and the Gomorrahites in that group. But he is talking to his own people, and he is calling them Sodomites and Gomorrahites. Verse 11, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, say the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of feed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? You see, because of their sins, he was addressing them as Sodom and Gomorrah. 
It would be like me coming up to you and saying, Hey, Charlie Manson, how you doing? The Israelites think they are giving God worship. And here is what God says. You're trampling my court. We are dishonoring the house of the Lord if we come into it with unrepentant lives and try to offer him worship. He not only calls it the trampling of my courts, here is what he says about your offering. Verse 13, bring no more vain oblations, empty offerings. If there is sin in your heart when you come here to worship, you are not only trampling God's holy courts, but your offerings are absolutely worthless. Incense is an abomination unto me, the new moons and Sabbath. And listen to this, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. God cannot. He will not endure sin in his worship. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They have become a burden to me. So when you spread forth your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are covered with blood. We are in a sorry state, my friends. If we come here in sin and our, in our lives that has not been dealt with, what are we to do? How can we be made acceptable to such a holy God? Verse 16, wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment or justice. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Just a sidelight. So many people want to make biblical doctrine to be nothing more than the social gospel. And we look at this passage and say, no, it's not really a social gospel. It's a religious gospel. But if you'll notice from Isaiah, there is no such thing as purity that does not involve social action on behalf of his people who need it. We are to defend the orphan and plead for the widow. The elderly, the shut-ins, the lonely, those without family can never be forgotten people in our church or we have no claim to the title Christian and we cannot worship. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. And only they shall see God. And we know from Hebrews 10 that we are commanded to draw near to God, but we are commanded to do so with a clean heart. And the inference there is, don't you dare draw near with an impure heart. The Puritan David Clarkson said, do not come to worship with guilt on your conscience. That is that from which we must be separated if we are to have God receive us. And 2 Corinthians 6, 17, Come out from them, and be ye separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and will be your father to you. Now the implication is, if we touch that which is unclean, he will not welcome us and be a father unto us. 
we must make ourselves acceptable before we come here, brothers and sisters. We must wash ourselves clean. We must repent. Clarkson says, do not come with mind and affections entangled in the world. Do not come with careless, indisposed spirits with hearts unaffixed. You can't prepare yourself for worship, listening to rock and roll music all the way here. And I have nothing against rock and roll music, young ones. But that is not a way to prepare yourself for worship. Nor can you be prepared if you have just offended or have unresolved issues with your spouse or other family members. God will not receive your worship. Take care of them before you come into this building. Clarkson says, don't come to worship with that carnal, dull temper which your hearts have in common with the world. If you sow among the thorns, you will reap little to raise your esteem for worship. Christ told the disciples that they were clean because of the Word, because of Christ. But then he told them they still needed to have their feet washed every day. We need daily repentance. And if that is true about living in the world, how much more important is when you go to worship? As you can see, it is essential that we deal with any sin between man and man and man and God before we can expect our worship to be acceptable with God. So what does all this mean? First of all, this. Men mistakenly assume that God accepts everything offered to him in worship. But we have learned here today, God may detest our worship unless we worship according to his word and in truth and in spirit. Secondly, that which makes worship unacceptable to God is disunity in the body and unrepentant sin. And that which makes worship acceptable to God is purity of heart. And remember, we can sin against a brother if we are not helping take care of his needs, whether they are physical, emotional, spiritual, or mental. To neglect the needs of your brethren is to sin against him. You don't have to punch the man in the nose. And lastly, a major part of the holiness that God requires before our worship is acceptable to him is to be in a right relationship with both man and God. Now those are the prerequisites for worship. Brothers and sisters, that is why you must spend time preparing for worship. And next week, we will discuss our preparations to meet a holy God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word and this look at what is absolutely necessary before worship is acceptable to you. It is not the amount of time that we worship. It is not merely the fact that we are here. 
It is the purity of our heart that makes our worth, our worship worthy. Father, deliver us from that mindset that says simply because we have been here, you have to be pleased with whatever we do. We must learn to regulate our worship according to Scripture, and may we remember that our hearts must be right with one another and you, or we have no business coming into your holy presence. Write these things on our hearts and help us to put them in practice so that you, dear Lord, are glorified with our lives. We ask these things for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402-1484, Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org. And if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org. Or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. Grace.